Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Sonia Renee Taylor, activist, poet, and author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Body is Not an Apology, The Power of Radical Self-Love. We speak with Sonia today about her book, her philosophy of radical self-love, and she also shares specific tools, actions, and resources for confronting some of our most challenging systems of oppression. Welcome, Sonia. Hi, thank you so much for having me. You know, I I was so excited to have you be part of my podcast when uh, your team reached out because I've been a fan of your book already. Yes. (laughs) And I follow you on social media. And it was so exciting to hear that we're talking now about your revised and expanded second edition, along with a workbook that you're going to be, is it in April? Uh, In March, March 16th. Okay, great. So why don't we start there? Tell me why you you decided to revise and expand your second edition and how the workbook complements the initial book. Absolutely. So first of all, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to be in the conversation. So my publisher approached my publisher approached me to write the book the very first time I wrote it. And then they came back and they were like, hey, second edition. And what really was useful and sort of made me be willing to entertain the idea was I knew that the very first edition was really about our individual journey with radical self-love. How do we use this concept of radical self-love to transform how we feel in our own bodies, how we feel about ourselves, how we relate to ourselves based on a a clearer understanding of the messages we receive from the world. And the piece that always mattered to me was Great. Now that we have dealt with this internal relationship, how do we use this framework to deal with how we deal with other bodies? Because that's the structural, that's the systemic, that's how we begin to, you know, really tear down the walls of oppression. And so the second edition really felt like an opportunity to have that conversation. Now, the challenge in a second edition is they do away with the first edition. <laughs> so the first edition, which I felt was so necessary and valuable in terms of giving folks practical tools about how to apply radical self-love to their own lives, we were going to lose some of that in creating the second edition. And so the opportunity to keep that concept was to add that information to a workbook so that people can have practical tools for how they live and work into their own radical self-love journey, and then also have clear and concrete ways in which they can begin to talk about dismantling these systems of oppression in the world. So together, I think, you know, the workbook and the second edition cover all the ground. How do I live in radical self-love and how do we use it to dismantle systems of oppression? What are the settings that you were envisioning the workbook might be used? I'm guessing we can use it individually, uh, settings such as schools or um, like my survivor group? Absolutely. I think it would be actually really powerful for survivor groups and for book clubs to take on these activities 
as a collective and to really build in the support and sort of feedback as people take this journey. Oh, what was your journey like? What? Oh, well, what came up for you in this section? I think that's a, a huge piece of, you know, one, putting into practice tool number nine, which is be in community. You know, this work can feel vulnerable. It can feel scary. It can feel lonely sometimes. And I think folks using it in a group setting can really offset some of the anxiety that comes from doing this inner work and feeling like we're alone in it. So, you know, this concept of self-love, I was first introduced to it, I mean, as a sort of philosophy and and analytical framework and also liberating framework when I read Bell Hooks. So her love series, all about love, and we actually read communion for a book club. And, but you, you add the word radical. For that. So how does this concept radical self-love differ from self-love and how do you define it? Yeah. So I, I think I would offer that Bell Hooks premise and all of her content is radical self-love. She just didn't use the word. <laughs> and, and what I wanted to do was to make that part explicit. You know, what the work is about is about transforming systems and structures. It is about how do we create something thoroughgoing and extreme to counter the thoroughgoing and extreme circumstances of oppression under which we live? How do we acknowledge self-love as inherent, as the origin story of our arrival on this planet? And then how do we make self-love the foundation upon which we build the world we say we want to live in? And so the radical part really is the operational part of self-love. How do I use this idea of self-love as an active force in changing the world for the better, not only for my existence, but for all of existence? And again, like I said, I'm I'm very clear uh, Dr. Bill Hooks does that. I just felt like to make it really plain, let's call it what it is, which is radical. So just this morning, I, I'm not going to say which platform because I, I don't want to reveal <laughs> The, um, I want to respect the privacy of the group that I'm in, but there was a post um, by someone uh, in a women's group, and uh, I'm going to read the quote. <laughs> Just, and I hope, hopefully, this won't, you know, identify someone and, and make them feel like doxed. But quote says, uh, "Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy." And I basically responded, and I'm, I actually want your your thoughts on what I what I wrote. Okay. So I said, "This is way off. Our job is to love ourselves first, so we can have a sense of self and grounding that allows us to work for the collective good. Loving others first, without standards of worthiness, sets us up for being amoral or immoral enablers of abuse and harm, and bystanders to individual and systemic oppression." This flawed perspective is why so many in our country allow abuse to happen and throw around the word unity and forgiveness instead of prioritizing accountability. And then finally, I state, the statement basically endorses living in the world without consequence and being complicit with no incentives for individual growth and positive change. Mm. <laughs> so I'm scared to hear what your answer is about your reflection, but there were there several points in your book that I, you know, raised my eyebrows, which because I reread your second edition, it's been a while since I read your first one. So 
I wanted to see where there was agreement and where there was, you know, uh, tension yeah, <laughs> and, and philosophy with regard to your book and what I so, just, <laughs> I'm here for it. Thank you for, I like juicy questions and this feels like a juicy one. And I think that there's this interesting place because for me, both your statement and the statement that you reply to do not feel incompatible. And, and so actually for me, Yes, first and foremost is always that I love myself and that I practice what does it look like to love myself in such a way that I value my own my own inherent worthiness and my own inherent enoughness and my own inherent like power and dignity. But if I see worthiness as conditional, then I will also experience my own worthiness as conditional. And I think that in particularly in the context of the conversation of survivors, it's really important that survivors do not see, see our identities as conditional, our worthiness as conditional, right? Now, the, the complexity is if I am inherently worthy, then all humans are inherently worthy. And being inherently worthy does not absolve us from the accountability of our behaviors. <laughs> Those are not mutually exclusive. That I am inherently worthy. I am inherently worthy of love, dignity, care, peace, all of those things. And I am accountable for the places in which I am interrupting other people's inherent right to love, dignity, care, and peace. And so I can love you. I can love me and hold me to account. I can also love others and hold them to account. And I think sometimes it's difficult to, we think love is some warm, mushy, fuzzy thing that is, you know, like about sending candies and flowers, <laughs> you know, or, or this like really dangerous codependent thing where we forget ourselves. We, you know, completely neglect our own beings, you know, in service of someone else. And those I would offer are, are not the models of love that I'm talking about. They're not the models of love that I think people who are talking about a radical or a revolutionary love are talking about. I'm talking about a love that premiums my own well-being, but holds the ability to understand the worthiness of all humans. And also because from that place, and just because somebody's worthy doesn't mean it's my responsibility to tend to them. And that I think is one of the things that's really important. In the process of caring for myself, that care may mean that I need to not be any place near you, have you anywhere in my life, um, and demand a certain level of accountability for the harm you've caused. That's part of my journey to love, to learning to radically love myself. Um, and the hope is that other people, should they choose to step into accountability, the opportunity is there for them too, because it's hard to be accountable if you don't ever feel redeemable. If no one ever feels redeemable, then it's going to be real difficult to get anybody to be accountable to anything. They'll just keep running from it. But if I understand myself as inherently redeemable, then accountability is a, a, a door that I'm more likely to walk through. That does not mean that I, as a survivor, it is my job to help anybody walk through that door. It's my job to walk myself through that door. And then it's my job to gather my resources and support systems so that should there need to be a process of my own healing that involves inviting that other person to walk through the door, cool, we can create that. And I may need to put some distance between that process and myself. That also is love. 
So I think there's a, a level of like layering complexity that lives inside of that, but I do not see those things as mutually exclusive. So what you just said sounds like it requires some minimal level of self-literacy, emotional yeah. literacy of the self-level <laughs> yeah. that I feel is not accessible to most people because we don't live in a society, especially for men, you know, where we're taught to understand and name and talk about our emotions and even express them, right? So then there's this presupposition, you know, that people are also like healthy and have a, you know, or have access to like this desire to be healthy and healthy tools and coping mechanisms. So what happens if, you know, obviously we're all in a, on a journey, you know, different points of that journey, but what happens if, so I'm thinking of survivors, right? Where that's a common experience when you have survivors who aren't aware of their own oppression, who make excuses for the abuse that they are experiencing and want to quote unquote, fix the abuser and try to prioritize the change of behavior in the other person rather than their own safety and well-being. How do you how do you respond to that kind of situation? So I would offer that like my presupposition is not that people are healthy necessarily, right? Like, and I would actually even offer like I, I don't even know if the word healthy is the word that I would use. I think that my presupposition is that healing is possible. That's my presupposition. And that I believe that like healing is possible for all of us, should we so choose it. And there are indeed people who will not. But, you know, the work of of the body is not an apology. And the reason that I talk about it is that it is about asking ourselves, where am I avoiding myself by throwing myself inside of someone else's existence? Where am I hiding from me? And why am I hiding from me? And I would offer that More often than not, we are hiding from ourselves because we think we're not worthy, because we think we're actually not enough. And so if I were to tend to me, then the desire to fix somebody else is the desire to find yourself worthy through them. So if you can get them right, then now you're validated. Like if if I can fix you, then I am whole. And the premise of radical self-love is you are already whole. And so the work is to keep reinviting people to that possibility. And yes, is that a long journey? Is that a difficult journey? All of those things. Yes, yes, and yes. But is it a possible journey? Also, yes. And so I think when we're talking about like the survivor who keeps being like, but no, I want to go save them. And But no, I think the, the work is to always be inviting them back to what would it look like to save you first? What would it look like to put the mask on? Like, and to also like, like anything, when we're told we can't do it, we want to do it more. <laughs> and, so, and so I think the conversation is not like immediately like, don't do that. That's terrible. That's not going to work because that's just like, now I need to prove you wrong. Right. And instead it's like, so cool. let's talk about order of operation. So cool. We'll put it on the list of possibilities, the possibility that you can change some other human's way of being. Sure, we will go with that as a possibility. <laughs> and even when you say it back out loud, people start to hear like, oh, yeah, I might be saying something that isn't actually real. But the question is, can we start with me? Can you start with you first? So that you, if your desire is to model what healing looks like so that somebody else can see it and decide to step into it, can we start with you first? 
All right, what would it look like to start with you first? And that, that to me is the invitation. So one of the things that I'm sure many of my listeners and I certainly have expressed myself struggling with over, especially over the past four, four plus years, and also from the perspective and the lens of the survivor, you know, I see my abuser who's still in my life. He's a coercive controller. And, you know, I see the behaviors that he's still engaging in as not ever ending because we share a child uh, Mm -hmm. in common. So there's always that connection that he can use. And so my perspective has really been around like being very clear around boundaries and prioritizing my own safety and well-being. And with respect to politics, right? Like how we've, we've now couched immoral behavior as political which I always reframe, how do we deal with people who the 74, 75 million people who I think are amoral and or immoral and a threat to me? Hmm. You know, how do we navigate a world where every interaction now, I want to make sure that I know who someone's values are before I give them money, you know, before I'm a customer, (laughs) before I enter their store. Yeah. You know, before whatever, every it's consumer decision is through that lens of, am I going to help someone be, be more powerful and use their power to oppress, mm-hmm. right? Or privilege to oppress, or am I going to try to help people who have been disenfranchised? So how do you view those people with, through the lens of radical self-love? Should we just not consider them or because we're focusing on ourselves, they, they're secondary anyway. <laughs> I don't know. So, so that's sort of, that's definitely a piece of it, right? Which is when I'm focused on myself, I'm focused on my community and focused on what it is that will serve and keep me, then I don't actually have a bunch of time to be all up in whatever their business is. <laughs> so that's part of it, right? Like, so actually like I live a life that is surrounded by folks who are going where I'm going. And so that brings to me the people to shop from that are aligned with me. It brings to me the people who I can, you know, be in relationship with that are in alignment with where it is I'm going. So that's one piece of it. I think in terms of the, like, what do I think of those people is that I think, and this is the premise of radical self-love, right? Is that oppression is built off of that experience of unworthiness, of not enoughness. And I would offer that Trump is and Trumpism and all of the folks who are deeply aligned with that particular viewpoint are a massive example of what happens when every single aspect of how you understand yourself or your worthiness is externalized. When every single aspect of whether or not you're worthy is about how much power you have, how much money you can amass, and how many people you can place beneath you. And so I believe, I mean, I'm you know, I wouldn't be doing my job if I believed that radical self-love couldn't work for those people too. (laughs) I believe that radical self-love is an invitation to a different way of understanding ourselves. Will everybody take it? No. But will enough people take it that we make those people obsolete, that we make them have to reconfigure how they move through the world? I do think that's possible. But again, that's all based on what it is that people decide it is that they want to take up. And I am less... The word is not concerned because I am concerned. Those people wield power. They stormed the Capitol. There are, you know, there is violence that can happen as a result of that line of thinking. And so inside of community, we build 
as much infrastructure as we can to keep ourselves safe. That is what, you know, that's what survivor work is, right? Is we build around us the infrastructure, the plan to keep ourselves safe as best as possible. And then we begin to shift our lives. We begin to shift our lives to the lives that we actually desire to live such that they are less entwined with the lives of people who do not desire to change. And we may, we will always, and I think your example is perfect about like, I am in a relationship with this person forever by virtue of having a child. We are in relationship with people who think like that forever by virtue of being humans who share the planet with them, (laughs) right? But we can be creating what it is that gets us closer to the world we want to live in so that we lessen and contain the way in which we have to engage with them while they're on whatever journey they're on. And I think that that really is the process. And because human evolution is such that ultimately we are pack creatures. And if whatever you're doing is disruptive to the pack in such a way that you know it creates isolation, you'll change your behaviors. That's really what it is. And so my goal is that we create a pack that is so radically self-loving that people who are on the outside of that have no choice but to actually curb their behavior in order to stay active, connected participants in society. That's my long-term vision. Is a part of that too, making making it so desirable to be part of that community that everybody feels left out who aren't? Yeah, like, I mean, it's one of the things that I love about the idea of love is like, who's out here like, I don't want no love. Like, no, <laughs> actually, even, even the most narcissistic identity is an identity that's dealing from like, I'm trying to figure out how to amass the most experience of what I think is love, right? That's actually what that is underneath. And so, yes, if we make the, you know, Tony K. Bambara said, we have to make the revolution irresistible. And I think that is what, that is what radical self-love is offering is how do I be such an embodiment of my own powerful knowing of my inherent divinity that when people see me, they're like, yes, I want to do that. Where are you going? I want to go there, (laughs) you know? And I think in this particular moment of, you know, I said this a little bit earlier to another friend is 2020 was the year where we learned we spread things, <laughs> that everything is contagious. And so I would offer that radical self-love as a way of being in the world is contagious. And the more that we embody it, the more we spread it, the more people become part of it, the easier it is to get the detractors and the people on the fence over to the other side. So in your, by the way, um, just what you mentioned Trump. So I, I want to bring this up because I, this is one of those examples of me raising my eyebrows. <laughs> On page two of your new book, your new edition, mm-hmm. you wrote, the 45th president strikes me as a man with epic self-confidence. The Donald, in quotes, is not struggling with his sense of self, even if the rest of the world is struggling with its sense of who he is. And I was just like, question mark. I don't think his self-confidence, is it? Isn't it more insecurity? Well, what I'm offering is that we often don't make the distinction between self-confidence and insecurity, right? Like, that's really what it is. It's like, yes, I. That what I'm offering is that self-confidence is flat. And if you dig underneath it, that's what you will find is insecurity. It is not actually... It's externalized, right? It's like, right, I feel great about myself today because people told me I look good. But when nobody tells me, then all of a sudden I'm in complete doubt about my own validity and worthiness. 
That is what self-confidence is. And so when we use that word, underneath it is always something weak and not not substantive. And then you contrast that with the tendency for women to always engage in apologies. So there's like a litany of apologies just for being us, for taking up space, you say. I mean, that's true for people of color too. And so how, I mean, I notice it and I try to catch myself when I do it, especially when I'm in situations where I feel like the person might have a temper or be maybe like erratic, unpredictable in their response. I'll be very deferential, but that takes me away from my authentic self. So then I feel diminished (laughs) when when I do that, right? So how do we navigate spaces where we can be ourselves fully, embody ourselves and our bodies and still be safe in those situations? Yeah. And so I think what you bring up is a really important question. I talk about it a little bit in the book as well is the distinction between fear and danger. And what you're talking about is a strategy of survival when we're in danger. And I think that what happens, particularly as survivors, is that all of those clues, right? Like somebody raises their voice or they look like they're getting upset with you or any of those things, read in our bodies as danger. We're in danger. When actually those situations more often than not are not necessarily danger because we're not in the same situation we were with our abuser or the person who caused us harm, right? But our body says, I'm in danger again, just like that. And so part of the work, and this is you know some of the tools that were in the first edition that have moved to the workbook, are tools about how do we start to, how do we start to re-regulate our nervous system? How do we use things like meditation and mantra to create neuro, new neural pathways that don't direct us directly to I'm in danger again, right? So that when we come up, so that we can be in our power when it is appropriate, when it, and there are times, some of this I would offer, there's an opportunity, an invitation to a perspective shift. If I am in danger and, or potential danger, right? Like I'm like, oh, there's something potentially dangerous. And I have developed strategies that keep me safe. That is not an act of diminishment. That is an act of my power and intelligence. So reframing how we how we um, view survival tactics. Exactly. That is no, so. That's tool number three, which is reframe your framework. Again, that's also in the workbook. So how can I approach what is right now instinctual? And I think that, again, there are two different tracks. One is like, okay, how can I? make greater distinction between fear and danger. But in the meantime, how can I approach the strategies that I have developed to keep myself alive as powerful, important wisdom that comes from me? And how can I feel powerful in those d- decisions and choices rather than diminish? I see. Okay. I And you know, getting back to the title of the book, The Body is Not an Apology. Let's talk about how that relates to radical self-love and connect the two. What does that mean? So Part of the way that, you know, I've been socialized is a fat, black, queer, neurodivergent, cisgendered woman. All of the ways that I've been socialized is that all of those markers, most of those markers are wrong, are undesirable. They are things that I I should wish I was not. And that I have been conditioned to move through the world trying to make people more comfortable or to 
you know, mitigate that negative aspect of myself? Like, how can I, how can I scurry up further on the ladder of a world that says that I'm at the bottom of the ladder because of those identities? And so when I say the body is not an apology, those identities are all body-based identities. My fatness is on my body. My queerness is on my body. My uh, womanness is on my body. My neurodivergency is on my body, right? And so when I say the body is not an apology, what I'm offering is what if there isn't anything for me to apologize? What if there's nothing wrong with me? That's the key question. What if there's nothing wrong with me? And the way that I believe that we get to not apologizing is this idea of radical self-love. It's like, if I recognize that I came here divinely divine, (laughs) I came here worthy and enough. There is no two-year-old I've ever seen who was like, I'm just not good enough. (laughs) Like, I just, you know, I can't stand the squishy belly. We've never seen any of that, right? We see embodied humans who love themselves and love other people. That is how we all arrived here. And so if we can stay connected to our inherent sense of knowing, then we don't ever have to be apologizing for our bodies. And so the work of radical self-love is is to return us to our inherent knowing, which is that the body is not an apology. So we did a whole series of um, interviews last year at the end of the year, exploring the concept of sex, womanhood, and femininity. And there were several authors who talked about tomboyism, for example. And when I read their books, there was a common theme that rejection of one's body, especially for girls, was a function of, you know, rejecting femininity and uh, embracing masculinity and all of the you know, sort of protections that masculinity offers, you know, the status that masculinity Mm -hmm. offers. Whereas with femininity, it made you a target, made you vulnerable because Mm -hmm. of your body. And so that's sort of the lens through which I read your book about how you talked about children being joyful and how that diminishes over time, you know, with shame and et cetera. Would you say that a lot of that journey towards not accepting our body, not loving our body is a function of gender, the, you know, the sort of um, gender binary that's imposed upon us? Yeah, I think that's a key piece. I think that all of it. So I think that what I talk about in the book is this system of bodily hierarchy, right? That we as a society have deemed some bodies as more valuable than other bodies. And there are ways in which we are always trying to navigate that ladder of hierarchy. And so, yes, at the top of that ladder of hierarchy is a cisgendered, able-bodied, relatively young, straight white man. (laughs) That is the default body. That's the default body in this society when we wrote all men are created equal inside of our founding documents, right? And so all of it, but it is a combination of identities. It's not just one identity. And I think that's an important piece of this work, right, is that we said, because, you know, inside of that same founding document, that 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 did not apply to cisgender, relatively young white men who were disabled. It didn't apply to the ones that didn't own land. So there has always been, even inside of those the highest ranking systems, more stratification. And so, yes, I think there are ways in which all of us have internalized the messages about what are good bodies and what are not good bodies. And we've all been trying to figure out how 
inside of the bodies we have, can we manipulate that to get higher up the ladder? And so gender is absolutely a piece about that. One of the things that I think is interesting about the premise you brought up is that also, though, we heavily police gender in society. So even when we think we are trying to access what we think will be greater positional power, oftentimes that comes with a, you know, a heightened level of risk and violence for disrupting the social order around our norms. And so I think, one, that that adds a layer of complexity to like the how and why, you know, like the how and why we engage in that, right? Like there are folks, you know, when I, you know, when I think particularly about the trans community, and I'm very clear that they are operating from a sense of self that absolutely is in defiance to what our society would offer that they should be, right? And and punishes them with deadly force for existing in such a way. And so one of the questions that I often ask us in terms of like a, let me check in to see if I'm inside of my own radical self-love or if I'm operating more inside of this system of bodily oppression is, when am I interested in changing myself in ways that systems of dominance and oppression will reward me for? If I can connect to the, oh, I'll be rewarded for this, then more than likely, oftentimes I am operating towards the system. I'm trying to get higher up the ladder. When you talk, so you know, there's a part, the uh, conformity to how society wants us to look often shows up in consumerist culture. Right. And you talk about the concept of best interest buying versus detriment buying. And so can you can you explore that a little bit? Because this morning, actually, there was an article on Frances McDormand as someone who uh, traditionally like she, you know, goes makeup lists and goes to awards shows with, um, you know, Birkenstocks on (laughs) as her (laughs) shoes of choice, along with a, you know, a dress, a designer dress. And so, but she's seen as still outside of the norm and not really fully embraced. You know, there was this article obviously tried to challenge that a little. Where does like makeup and all of that um, fall into like best interest buying and that equation around, you know, detriment buying? Yeah. So inside the book, I talk about best interest buying as where, uh, where are my purchases in alignment with my desire to live a more radical self-love life? Where are my purchases a function and a reflection of my my sense of innate worthiness and enoughness? And then where, detriment buying is, where am my purchases a reflection of my sense of not enoughness, my sense of I'm not good enough, or my sense of I'm trying to get up that ladder? And it's complex. It's complex because we are deeply interwoven inside of this system of capitalism. It is all up in all the ways that we move. And so it is a place. I think, it, you know, it is kind of like if radical self-love as its sort of foundational premise is the 101 class, this piece about, you know, best interest buying and detriment buying is your 102 level or so, uh, because you do have to be in an, engaged in a level of self-reflection and you have to get honest with yourself. And that's not always comfortable. And so I'm the person who says, like, I, I, am, I believe in adornment. I love earrings. I love jewelry. I'm on here today. I don't know if people see me, but I've got a bright scarf and earrings and sunglasses and a bangle. And, and I love adornment. And my adornment is a practice of self-expression. It is not a practice of externalized value. I am not 
a better person. I'm not prettier, more important, more necessary in the world, more valid because I put on some glasses and earrings and a scarf today, which is why I'm just as likely to do a video in my bathrobe with boogers. <laughs> and it's because I actually am clear that I am, I am, period, end of sentence, regardless of what it is that I am putting on. And so part of the work for me, part of me getting there was I had to practice what are the things that are tied to my self-worth and what happens when I press up against that. So for years that was makeup and cute outfits. And that was a major part of like my identity. And then I gave myself time and said, what would happen if you just didn't do that? And the beginning of it was discomfort for a while. Like, oh, I'm out and I don't look cute or whatever that means, right? Until I began to redefine how it is that I experienced myself. I became used to myself as just myself. And once I was used to myself as just myself, everything else just became addition and not necessary in my definition. And so that is the piece that I think we're constantly having to work with and again, it, it requires a deep level of introspection. And so I think first, really getting in touch with our own radical self-love journey. What do I, and you know, and we talk about this in the book as a thinking, doing, being process. The first step of this work is I've got to raise that which is unconscious to consciousness. I have to actually start thinking about my thought. I got to like, oh, I did just think that, didn't I? <laughs> and I have to get myself acquainted with that. And then once I'm acquainted with that, I'm at choice. Once a thought is conscious, you can consciously do different behavior. You can't if it's never conscious, right? And so once you're at choice, then you can begin saying, what's a different kind of doing that I want that is more aligned with where it is that I'm going? And the process of that in repetition is being. And so I think we have to start, start there, do that work to get really intimate with ourselves. And then we can start being like, all right, now that I'm in this conversation, I can start thinking about what am I buying? What does it mean? All of those things. So I would love for you. Okay. So what, how do you reconcile that with someone who might want to, you know, dye their hair? Uh, uh, I mean, like, you know, to cover the grays or to engage in gastric bypass surgery or, you know, get breast implants and they, uh, or any kind of plastic surgery. And their, their rationale for it is I would feel better about myself and not, not externalized. They're yeah. articulated well, rationale. Yeah. Yeah. So again, there are a couple of things. There's the piece that is like, when, when am I interested in changing myself in ways that a system of dominance will reward me for? That's question one. Ask yourself that first, because <laughs> that's going to tell you like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Like, okay, I can be telling myself that I'll feel better, but I'll feel better because this outside system is going to reward me. That's a thing to, that's a way to like begin to grapple with that. The other thing that I often tell people is it is rarely about the what you do and almost always about the why. And so we have to be in the process of distillation. Because I'll feel better about myself. Okay, so what what is it that you don't feel better good about now? Because the work of radical self love is to stop putting off loving ourselves when we get someplace. When I don't have gray hair anymore. When I have lost fifty pounds. 
when my breasts are bigger. Those are all delayed places of personal satisfaction. And what radical self-love offers and invites us into is a right now relationship of loving with ourselves. And so when I'm inside of the like, I'm going to do this because I'll feel better. The question is, what in the right now is between me feeling better right now? What, and what is the story that is attached to that? There's a story that I have about what life is going to be when I lose 50 pounds or what life is going to be when I don't have gray hair. There's a story attached to that. And that is almost always tied to systems of oppression and what they've told us about whether or not we're good enough or not. That's the piece we've got to go back and grapple with. Okay. So your final chapter or before the conclusion, how to fight with love, we kind of talked about that a little bit and you gave us some uh, framework that you use the thinking, doing, and being framework. And you specifically addressed in that chapter, fighting fat phobia, fighting ableism, fighting queer phobia, and transphobia. And I was just wondering, because sexism is never really made visible in lots of conversations, was that intentionally left out? You didn't have fighting sexism. I didn't have fighting sexism. So there are a couple of reasons why I think that ended up being the case. One is, uh, to be honest about the demographic of my readers, which are mostly women. <laughs> so, and so there is a piece that is about, that chapter is about how do I fight the thing that I have privilege in? And that really is the invitation inside of those sections is where are my areas where I'm higher up the ladder and how do I dismantle the ladder in such a way? The reality is that like 96% of my audience are people who either identify as women or trans or non-binary. And so I didn't do that section because I wasn't really writing it for the 4% of men who probably pick this book up. I think that might be a different book. Okay. All right. I, my sort of observations of and my struggles in my activism with the community that I work with is unlike other forms of discrimination and oppression, I think as a group, women, we are the largest in volume and number across the globe, but we are the ones with the least awareness of our own oppression. There's not an agreement that there's oppression that yes. we experience. The structural sexism exists, which is why you have this problem with white women <laughs> supporting different systems that want to control women's bodies and all these other things. So that I think is just such a problem because it's taken for granted that we're going to have an awareness and absolutely. And I think, you know, I try to talk a little bit, I try to talk a little bit in inside of the book about patriarchy and about that as one of the primary systems of oppression. But I think you're right that it, it is useful. And, you know, I'm, if there's a third edition, I'll be right. <laughs> No, I mean, like recently, you know, this whole conversation on the internet between Tom Brady after the Super Bowl, is he the GOAT, the greatest of all time, or is Serena Williams? And there were all these articles that came out about Serena Williams. And just that was a perfect example because everybody mentioned racism, but nobody mentioned sexism. Exactly. They go together. So anyway, so this is a great segue to the closing of our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions that I call the engendered questionnaire. And the first question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end 
gender-based violence? I mean, all of life is at stake. You know, I see gender-based violence as intricately connected to every major humanitarian crisis that we face. And so until we learn to build equitable and just societies uh, for women and girls, we will have a world that is on the brink of destruction always. And so, yeah, they're indomitably tied together. What gives you hope? Radical self-love and watching people step into it, watching people start to like have their own aha about their own self and then to have that aha about how they move through the world with other bodies and to start to be like, oh, I think I can do this. I think we can do this. That to me is all the hope. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Hmm. We can do more listening to the experiences of folks who are, who who have experience with gender-based violence, um, listening to survivors and elevating their stories and elevating again, like we talked about earlier, the power of survival, right? There is something for all of humanity to learn in the side of the power of survival. I think that we can stop, we can stop hiding from the conversation, right? We can stop being afraid to just like get into the complexities you know, perfect example of the our, our question earlier, right? About like, is it possible to love people in, in their inherent worthiness? And how does that deal with accountability? Like we need to have those conversations. And I think we're afraid to, because they are, they can be complex, right? But yeah, there's nothing that'll be remedied unless we're willing to be uh, courageous inside of those conversations. More love, less patriarchy and capitalism. <laughs> Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Sonia. I look forward to working on the workbook with my community, The Engendered Collective, and reading your book for our book club. And I encourage all the listeners to go out and get the book and the workbook as well. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a great tool to provide for self-reflection and, and starting the process. Awesome. Thank you, Terry, for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.